Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Michelle Kapler. Michelle is a certified life coach specializing in overdrinking and alcohol freedom. She works with individuals who want to change their relationship with their alcohol consumption. Michelle is on a mission to create a modern conversation around drinking, alcohol culture, especially in motherhood, and how we think about using alcohol as a way to cope with stress. As a former heavy drinker, a highly successful entrepreneur, and a mother, Michelle understands what it's like to have a big, full, wonderful life on the outside, but to truly feel that you need a glass or bottle of wine to make it through life. To feel like sometimes you are drinking against your own will, to feel like you have lost control. To hear the full story of Michelle's journey with overdrinking, you can head on over to her podcast, the Alcohol Freedom Podcast, and check out episode two. In the episode, she shares how to know if you have a problematic relationship with alcohol, what to do if you feel weird not drinking in social situations, mindset shifts everyone must overcome when on a journey to drink less, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since they deliver groceries directly to your door, Thrive is able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my home. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing, if you've struggled to lose weight and keep it off, you're not alone. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition and weight loss coach. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets and programs that only provide short-term results, I help my clients adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that they can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of cravings, have steady energy throughout the entire day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. All right, it's time to hear from Michelle. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best, without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You, like a few other guests of mine, posted something in the business group we're in together. I forget what it was, but it really caught my attention. And then I immediately reached out to you and asked you to be on this podcast. Um, I've had several other guests who've also been in our business group. And it's really cool to connect with people in there because we're all kind of doing the same thing. And I don't know about you, but I feel like there are just such brilliant, brilliant minds in there. And I just want to talk to everyone. A hundred percent. And I like that it's kind of like this modern business version of like meeting people organically. It would be kind of like comparing it to, well, I met my husband in a bar versus I met him on a dating app and I'm not slogging dating apps. I met my husband online, but it's kind of a little bit more organic rather than let me send you a formal pitch to be on your podcast. A hundred percent. Yeah. And also when you were saying that I was thinking about stereotypical kind of networking events, which always kind of made me cringe. Mm. And I was starting my business before COVID and people were encouraging me to go to those and I was just dragging my feet and then COVID happened. And then I could connect with people online. And I was like, this is way better. This is much more my speed. Um, But yeah, just very grateful for how we can kind of network in that group and meet each other. And I'm so glad that our paths crossed and can't wait to have this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it as well. I love just telling as many many people as I can about what I'm talking about. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, good. Good. Well, on your website, uh, I want to kind of start there because I love how you frame it. And I think this will be just a good um, primer for anyone listening of kind of what we're going to talk about today. So you say I'm a certified life coach and I want to help you find freedom in your relationship with with your drinking. I can help you question that nightly glass or bottle of wine that you need to make it through your life. I get it. I've been there. And I want to help you explore this without labels and without judgment. And I was mentioning, I think when I initially reached out to you and then briefly off air, that I've been very interested in having someone on to talk about our relationship with alcohol and how it's serving us or not. But a lot of people out there, kind of the same in the nutrition space, go to one extreme or the other. So it's maybe, you know, alcohol is great. Everybody should drink all the time. There's no problem with it. Or it's don't drink at all. um, Cut it out completely. So there's, it's hard, I've found, to find somebody on to talk about, can you find a middle ground, a gray area, if you're not let's say, struggling with alcoholism, right? If it's not something where you have to cut alcohol out completely, is there a way to cut back and improve your relationship with it? So I'm really excited that you hold that space in the middle. And it seems as if you help people with both, either cutting alcohol out completely or cutting back. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And okay. I think it's I think it's kind of interesting to talk about this from the perspective of the field that you're in because oftentimes um, whether, I mean, it's anything that we put into our bodies, whether it's supplements or foods or alcohol or, you know, the latest protein powder, whatever it is, people get really, really dogmatic about it. And it's really black and white thinking. You either have to be on the wagon or off the wagon. You have to be perfect or you're total awful. Um, And I think that it's really 
important to find your own middle ground in terms of what aligns with what you think about what's going on. Um, Because at the end of the day, I don't know what's best for anybody else. You don't know what's best for anybody else. Even if we have knowledge and expertise in this area, even if I know a lot of statistics about drinking, I certainly don't know what's best for somebody else. So I'm just here to offer some tools for people who want them and they can do with them what they want and what they think is best. Mm, Yeah, I love that. Can you tell us a bit about your background and then specifically what led you to become a certified life coach And then I guess to get into this field of helping people with alcohol specifically. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, like a lot of us, we come to this through our own personal story, our own personal journey. So, you know, I could spend some time going over my professional resume, but what's probably going to be more interesting for your listeners is that I am a person who had a pretty intense relationship with my drinking over the years. So through my 20s and early 30s and into early motherhood, I have two kids. Um, I was a heavy drinker. I drank a lot. Like in my heaviest days, I was averaging a bottle a night, probably more on the weekends. But the interesting thing is that my life wasn't destroyed because of it. I was highly functional and I actually looked really great on paper. I was highly successful in my professional field. I own a busy reproductive acupuncture clinic in Toronto where I lived. Um, I was feeling really good about the work I was doing. I was creating jobs for other women. I was helping a lot of people. I had two beautiful children. I was in a loving marriage. And I talk about this all in the past tense because I'm talking about my past experience, but I'm still married and I still have two children, just to be clear about that. (laughs) But, you know, even though my life looked really great on paper, on the inside, I was always consumed with this dark cloud hanging over my head, which was because I was drinking a lot. And if I wasn't drinking a lot, I was recovering from drinking a lot. And if I wasn't doing that, I was beating myself up because of my drinking. I was questioning my drinking and it was all consuming. And so I spent a lot of time in this space where my life wasn't bad enough, like my drinking wasn't bad enough that I was going to work drunk or getting my kids taken away or my husband asking for a divorce or or staging an intervention or, I don't know, getting in my car drunk and wrapping my car around a tree. It was nothing like that. Um, So I didn't feel like I fit the definition of what it looked like to have a drinking problem. But at the same time, I was having some results in my life that I didn't quite like. A lot of it, which was kind of this internal self-sabotage, beating myself up. And so this went on for years and years and years. Um, And what happened was COVID happened. And we were a couple of weeks into the pandemic. And I think that What was kind of interesting was watching this phenomenon unfold where this culture of reaching for things outside of ourselves to provide comfort just kind of came to a head for a lot of people. So for me, what that looked like was I wasn't only having my nightly bottle of wine. I was also having maybe three cupcakes and binging on Tiger King and scrolling social media all at the same time because I was just reaching for all of these things to try to deal with the stress of what was going on in the world. And as a result of that, there was just a lot of this inner turmoil and beating myself up over it. Like, you should be able to do better. You're a health practitioner. Does your family see what you're doing? You should be able to get a handle over this. You should be able to do this better. And it was just a lot of that beating myself up constantly for it. And so I think it was about six weeks into the pandemic. And I came to a place where I realized that I needed to make a choice. And this choice was between either just 
surrendering and telling myself that it was okay to be doing all of those things and just kind of renouncing beating myself up myself up over it because it was an unprecedented circumstance and we were dealing with a lot and there was kind of this collective thing happening in the world where a lot of us were just like doing what we needed to do to get through the day and so I either needed to kind of lean into just being okay with all of that or I needed to make a decision to just do something else and because no matter what I chose, what I was doing wasn't working. And so obviously, I chose the latter, I decided to stop drinking and really lean into these health practices that I was preaching all the time, as an acupuncturist, as an alternative healthcare provider, and, you know, just kind of lean more into that self love and acceptance. And from there, it was kind of this interesting windy way of doing it. But I had my last drink on my 35th birthday, which was almost two years ago. And I haven't had a drink since. And I did it in a way that I didn't need to identify as an alcoholic because that really wasn't an option for me. And it just didn't feel right for me. And at the same time, I knew I needed to change. So I did it through therapy and meeting other people who were doing the same thing. And then I found life coaching, which was really kind of what sealed the deal for me. Life coaching offered so many incredible tools to really unpack all of the things in my mind that kind of caused this behavior almost, which, you know, at the end of the day, it's my belief that if somebody develops a negative relationship with anything that we can get addicted to, so it could be, you know, for me, it was wine, but for other people, it could be overusing social media or binging on Netflix or overeating or pornography or gambling or overexercising or any of the things that you can get addicted to. I mean, it really comes from this thing that's rooted in normal brain function. Um, so I really enjoyed finding these life coaching tools that kind of took the morality out of it. And from there, I mean, two years later, I can honestly say that it's the best decision I've ever made. And my life is better than I ever could have imagined. And I just love being able to share that with other people. I love being able to help other people achieve that in the same way. So that's the long-winded version of my journey. <laughs> Wow, really cool. Um, well, I'm curious, you said you had your last drink on your 35th birthday. At the time, did you know that was going to be your last drink? Did you decide that day just to quit cold turkey and that this was going to be a long path? Or did you just decide, I'm not going to drink for a while or even just tomorrow? What did that look like in that moment? I think in the moment it was, I'm just going to see what happens and I don't need to decide what the rest of my life is going to look like. But what I do know is that I need to decide to become a different version of myself. I need to become a person mm. who does other things to cope with the stress and the turmoil and really anything in life. Um, I needed to become a person who doesn't reach for alcohol for every little thing, who doesn't rely on it. And so... Um, that's kind of the difference between like, let's say doing a 12 step program is that, yeah, you really do renounce the use of alcohol for an ever and ever for the rest of your life. But I don't really take that approach. Um, cause even to this day, I still tell myself that, yeah, I could, I could have a drink if I wanted to. Um, but the reality is that I just don't want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see the difference there. Mm -hmm. How much alcohol is too much 
I mean, I know there's the health guidelines, but then is it really just individual of how much is too much for you if you're not focusing on the health guidelines? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, just to illuminate what the health guidelines actually are, in case anybody listening wants to know what that is, um, to define a couple of key definitions in that binge drinking, which is the most common form of excessive drinking, is defined as consuming more than four drinks in a, sit- in a single sitting for a woman or five or more drinks in a single sitting for a man. And then the other definition that we want to look like is the or look at is the definition of heavy drinking, which is defined as consuming more than eight drinks per week for a woman and more than 15 drinks per week for a man. But the question is a little bit complicated because yes, there are medical and statistical guidelines to answer this question. However, we also have to take into account the individual circumstances that play into that equation. So a good example of this is body size. And bodies come in all shapes and sizes and cannot be addressed in kind of a one size fits all approach. And I think that that could probably be something that you're familiar with as well as somebody who talks to people about food. There's no one diet that's going to work for everybody. And it's the same with alcohol. So to give you an example, if somebody's 5'1", and 100 pounds, they're probably going to have very different limits than somebody who's 5'10 and 250 pounds. And, mm. and those are both women, of course, that I'm comparing. And we also have to factor in things like level of physical activity, how hydrated somebody is that day, their general tolerance for alcohol, their history with alcohol, there's genetic factors, and even some mi- someone's mindset about alcohol can make a huge difference in determining how much is too much. So really, at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual and how they are thinking about it. And that's, you know, there are guidelines, and of course, they're important and useful. But really, to know what too much is, you kind of have to turn inward and ask yourself. Right. I'm thinking too, if somebody's having a Bud Light that's 5% and then they're, or somebody else is having whiskey on the rocks, both could be counted as one drink, but the alcohol content of both is so different. So it's really just saying eight drinks or whatever is, is tough. It's a tough parameter to kind of know what does that even mean? Well, there are also, I mean, you can look at definitions of what a drink is. So I think a drink Mm -hmm. is defined as, I think, I think it's 10, maybe it's eight ounces of beer, a little bit more Mm. of light beer, one ounce of hard liquor, and I think five ounces of wine. I could be totally saying this incorrectly. So please look it up if you're wondering, Um, but you can actually Google what constitutes a drink. Um, But you're right. I mean, it's going to be And I would say that most people probably aren't measuring how much is in a glass. I mean, if I used to have a glass of wine, it was like full to the top. It was not, it was not a single serving. I certainly wasn't putting it in a graduated cylinder and looking at how many ounces I was drinking. I was just kind of pouring out of the bottle and, you know, estimating. I've even seen people uh, post images of the pour of wine a restaurant will give you is really more like two servings of wine versus what the guidelines suggest a serving of wine is. Um, And then on some menus, they'll have, you know, you could get a four ounce pour, an eight ounce pour, so you could kind of control it more and they actually do measure it out. But yeah, it's all just kind of a wash. (laughs) We don't exactly know at any point how much alcohol a restaurant is using in a cocktail or how heavy the wine pour is going to be. So I think the points you bring up are really important. 
Yeah. And I would also say that to get really granular about it like that, I don't think is super helpful for somebody. Mm. I mean, if you're looking at being on a therapeutic diet, for example, it's probably going to be really important to count macros and know, you know, exactly what you're putting inside. But if we're talking about somebody's relationship, and more importantly, their emotional and mental relationship to alcohol, whether or not you had six ounces versus nine ounces, it's kind of beside the point, I would say. Yeah, that's a good point. How would somebody know then if they have a problematic relationship with alcohol? Because it's sounding for you, you could kind of tell and feel it after a bottle of wine, but somebody may even just be having one glass of wine a night and may have a problem problematic relationship with alcohol? Yeah, I would say that I've never met somebody that I've worked with or that I've talked with online or that has given me feedback or that I've had a conversation with um, about this topic. I don't think that I've ever met anybody who said, well, why didn't anybody tell me I was drinking too much? I mean, you know, you know, if you have a bad relationship with alcohol, it's not a mystery. It's not a secret. I mean, just because you know, doesn't mean you're going to do something about it or that you want to do something about it or that you want to change. But it's usually pretty obvious if you're cre- and, and I would say to answer that question definitively, my barometer on that is if somebody is getting results in their life because of their drinking that aren't serving them or that are negative or that they don't like, then that's a pretty good indication that they're having too much. And that's a very individual mm. personal thing, right? Right. In doing research for this episode, I came across a quote from a woman. She may have, I think she wrote a book actually on the topic. You probably know better than I do, but I don't remember her name. Um, I just, what she said really struck me is that she, this isn't her exact words, but she said something like, I don't wake up in the morning or I didn't wake up in the morning craving alcohol and I didn't need a drink first thing, but I also couldn't go to a bar and have fewer than four drinks. So it was kind of this illustration of she she didn't feel like she craved it, but she also couldn't kind of stop once she started in defining her poor relationship with alcohol, which I think maybe a lot of people could relate to. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's just one more example of how there isn't really a prescriptive way to describe what all of that means. Because yeah, there are people that legit wake up in the morning and get the shakes Mm -hmm. if they don't have something. And that's chemical dependence. That's actually a medical condition that requires medical attention. And that's not the kind of person that I work with. If somebody has an alcohol abuse or misuse disorder that requires medical intervention or attention, that's not... I mean. I'm happy to talk to them, of course, but I would definitely advise that they speak to their medical provider, medical team on getting a proper treatment. Um, But what we look at culturally is that we're given kind of those two extremes as the only two options for where somebody could be. So like I did an interview with my husband on my podcast a while ago, and I was like, I was asking him what it was like to be married to somebody who has a negative relationship with alcohol and what that was like for him. And, and I asked him, like, did you know something was going on? Because I thought about it for a good 10 years before I actually did something about it. But did you know that something was going on? And he was like, no, because in my mind, the idea of what somebody with a drinking problem is didn't match what I was seeing in you. So because I wasn't bracing myself for violence or routinely cleaning up vomit, 
or, you know, having you parent irresponsibly, I didn't think you had a problem. And so Mm. we just have these like Hollywood versions of what it means to have a drinking problem. So that's one option. Or the other option is that you're totally normal and you can drink anytime and it's just not a problem. But the reality is that a lot of people exist on that spectrum in between. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I know sober curious is a new term I've been hearing. I don't know if it's a new term, new to me, (laughs) but from what I understand, that term includes the word sober is mostly about people who are choosing to enter a life of full on sobriety, or they're, as the term suggests, at least curious about it. Are most of the people who come to you sober curious and really interested in cutting out alcohol are all together or are most just wanting to cut back or is it kind of half and half? So that's an interesting question. And there's kind of a lot to unpack in that question. Um, To talk about the term sober curious in particular, I would say like, yeah, it's relatively new. It's definitely a lot newer than the term alcoholic, for example. Um, So I think it's really kind of universally used to describe these people who are interested in living an alcohol-free lifestyle is in they don't drink and it's not because they have a problem with drinking but they just want to see what life is like without it and so they're just kind of curious to see what it's like um, but again there's no clinical definition of what it means so it's it's kind of in the eye of the beholder it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you and then to answer the other half of your question I would say most of the people that I work with come to me from the mind frame of, I just want to feel like I'm in control of this. I don't want to quit forever. I don't want to, you know, become sober. I don't want to be a person who never drinks again. I just want to feel like I have a handle on this. I just don't want to feel like I'm drinking against my own will. I just want to make sure that I'm making, uh, like I'm in the driver's seat of this whole thing. But what's interesting is that kind of like me, a lot of people end up in this place where yeah, they could take it or leave it, or they could have a drink, but usually they just don't want to because the technique that and the work that I do with people is actually rooted in cognitive psychology, behavior modification, and thought work. And the idea is to actually rewire the habit in somebody's brain. And what that results in is that somebody will completely lose their desire to drink. And so mm-hmm. people end up in this place where it just doesn't even occur to them that they could have a drink. And so most people just end up drinking a lot less by, by way of um, doing that process, but not necessarily intending to end up not drinking. I'm sure it's kind of similar to the work that I do. As you mentioned earlier, during COVID, there were all these things we were looking to, to self-soothe. And then maybe those habits have still lasted you know, habits are a tricky thing. They don't just disappear once the vaccine comes out. (laughs) And then once the world starts opening up, it'd be great if there was a vaccine for undo all of these (laughs) habits that I don't want anymore that I've learned over these two years of being cooped up in my house. But that's not the case. So I'm sure a lot of people post-COVID are still struggling maybe with the increased alcohol consumption. I know it was kind of a meme thing and a joke during COVID of everybody was drinking a lot more. Yep. And I think that that's been proven statistically that everybody was drinking a lot more. And I'm curious, I mean, I don't know if you know the statistics, I don't, but if people are still drinking at the same clip that they were, or if it's kind of died down a bit, but doesn't really matter like you're saying nationally or globally what's going on if it's happening still in your own home 
then that, and it's a problem for you, then there's something you can do about it. Same like with food. If people were reaching for a lot of things, you know, your arm's length from your pantry at all times of day working from home, there's new habits and kind of new things you need to implement now that the world is opening back up again and you can kind of feel in a healthier headspace. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny you say that because I actually do have some pretty recent stats around the COVID COVID pandemic and drinking. Um, A colleague and friend of mine recently sent me an article in the Wall Street Journal um, that actually illuminated some research that showed a 15% increase in overall alcohol consumption over the past year. And this article came out in November last year, I believe. Um, So it's fairly recent. And that was for a general population of adults. And what I thought was really interesting was that for women, the increase was over 41%, which I think is very illuminating Mm -hmm. that maybe women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I would also hazard a guess that it's especially disproportionate for mothers. I don't have data to support that, but I'll just call it a hunch. I mean, yeah, I would get off a phone call or just text thread with a friend who's a mother and feel like I needed a drink myself. (laughs) Not to joke about, not to bring all the jokes here, but just during the pandemic, all of the stress that parents were put on, like you said, possibly disproportionately mothers. I mean, you can see where the five o'clock cocktail hour maybe got closer to 4 or 3 p.m. and where people were using again alcohol or food or something to self-soothe and provide comfort when there wasn't a lot of comfort available elsewhere. Um, I'm not a mom yet but I've heard and read about alcohol as something that's become kind of part of mommy culture and almost like a I don't know if it's a badge that moms wear or it's it's just joked about a lot. There's a lot of memes about mom alcohol. Is this new or is this just spoken about more now? I would say that, um, yeah, I mean, mommy wine culture being kind of the technical term for all of that is something that I definitely speak about on a regular basis. And I want to start out by saying that I don't think there's anything wrong with drinking and motherhood. And if you're doing that and it's working for you and there's nothing happening that is a negative result in your life, I'm certainly not standing on a high horse saying that mothers shouldn't drink. That's not my position at all. But I think it's really important to recognize kind of where mummy wine culture comes from. And the definition of that is essentially it's this cute meme that a mom or a parent in general, because I mean, this affects parents of all genders, but, you know, essentially, that a person needs to have alcohol on a regular basis to be able to tolerate their experience of parenthood. So it's that whole like, mommy's got a glass of wine in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other. And it's just like cute and funny. But what where it comes from is actually this multi-billion dollar industry that is recognizing that moms are a prime target market for alcohol sales and that Mm -hmm. they you know often have a lot of time on their hands and disposable income in a lot of cases and they're this huge untapped market that has a lot of money and so there's been a lot of marketing dollars and advertising and effort put into promoting mommy wine culture and then it's also just kind of part of social media and it's taken off but to recognize it as something that's kind of coming from 
maybe a more sinister motive, if you will, um, to try to make money off of these people, it's, it, it kind of sheds a different light on it. Um, so just to say that first, and then in terms of what advice I would have for moms who find themselves relying on a drink or several um, to make it through the day, it really wouldn't be that different than advice that I would give anybody who's thinking that they might have a problem. And, you know, the first step in any of this is awareness. And so my advice to anybody who's having these thoughts and feelings is just to take notice, just to pay attention and not be afraid to ask yourself questions in the moment or thereafter. You know, like if I'm having this intuition that maybe this isn't right, or maybe that I'm having a problem, or maybe this isn't in alignment with the vision that I have for my life, can I get really honest with myself about what's really going on? And then just noticing, just asking questions, because it doesn't mean that you have to do anything about it. It doesn't mean that you, excuse me, it doesn't mean that you have to automatically start going to meetings and swear off alcohol right away. It's okay to just ask for a while. I mean, I spent 10 years questioning my drinking before I actually did something about it. So it's really okay to just think about it for a while. Ask yourself questions. Mm, I love that. I do the same type of thing with food. Again, very aligned here, but in terms of the noticing and not even needing to make a change immediately, just take even a week, two weeks, a month, just noticing, mm-hmm. you know, because like you said, that's the first awareness is the first step to change. You have to know what's going on before you can make changes. Yeah, for sure. Since a lot of our social lives revolve around food and alcohol, I know it can feel kind of awkward to drink less or even not at all among family, friends, coworkers at work happy hours or whatever. Sometimes I know for myself, if there's a night that I don't feel like drinking and then the wait, the server comes and says, can I put a drink order in? And then if everybody orders a drink and I say, I'll have seltzer, all eyes can be on me. And it almost feels like I'm bringing the mood down or kind of a problem. And the server will leave and then everybody will ask, you know, why are you not drinking? What's going on? Um, So what tips do you have for navigating social situations? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I did an entire podcast episode on this, by the way. So Mm. I'm happy to send that to you if if people want to really dive into this, because I know that it's a a pretty big concern for people. Um, I mean, it really comes down to what other people think. And in my experience and in the experience of my clients, there's really kind of three types of reactions when you say, I'm not drinking or I'm not drinking tonight or I'm not drinking right now or I decided not to drink anymore. Um, you know, there's kind of three types of reactions that people have. There's, there's the people that are like, wow, good for you. I wish I could do that. Like they're really impressed and they're really mm. happy about it. And then there's the people who are like, meh, you're no fun. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Have a drink. It'll be fine. Like they're the people who really don't approve of your decision not to drink. And then there's the people who just don't care. And I would say that the majority of people just don't care. They kind of fall into that Mm -hmm. third camp. Most people do not care what's in your glass because everybody else is thinking about themselves and not about you. So (laughs) I will just say that first. And, you know, usually to talk about the, the second kind of people who are 
you know, kind of against it or find it necessary to grill you or question your decisions. Usually that's just a reflection of their own insecurities when it comes to their drinking. And they, they don't like to see other people making decisions and moving forward with something that they kind of wish that they could take a look at in their own life. So if you can kind of reframe it in that way, it can allow you to have a more empathetic view of what they're saying to you. And then I would also say, just to kind of follow that up a little bit, I mean, if you're if you're thinking about changing your relationship with alcohol, if you think it's a problem for you and you're wanting to cut back, and this is kind of the same thing with eating. I think people would have the same conversation. Well, what about all the people that I go out for cheesecake with? Or what about all the people that I have like these really elaborate brunches with, but I'm not eating that way anymore? At some point, you kind of have to think, well... I kind of have to become a bit of a different person if I'm going to do this differently to get the results that I want in my life. And are these relationships with people that are kind of putting me down for making a choice that's in the best interest of both my mental and physical health? Do I really want to keep those relationships in my life? You know, are they people that I really want to be spending time with if they're not going to support me in doing something that I know is in my own best interest? And I guess another extension of that is there were several relationships in my life where I was like, I don't even want to hang out with these people if I'm not drinking. Like, it sounds horrible hanging out with these mm. certain people if I'm not drinking. And so I kind of say, well, you know, if if you have to drink in order to tolerate being around these people, are they actually people that you want to have in your life? So I know this is like a little bit deeper than just tips and tricks for navigating things socially, but I, you know, this kind of change really brings up a lot in people and it goes along with that whole thing where you kind of have to become a different person. And I think it's the same for eating that if you're going to, like if you're used to going out for nachos and fries and beer with your friends on a Friday night and they want to continue to do that, but that's not going to fit in with your life anymore, you kind of have to reevaluate are those relationships that I want to keep. Yeah, really good point. And if you can show up and say, oh, I'm going to have just a few of the nachos and also get this other thing and everybody says, cool, you know, maybe that is a really supportive friend group, but same thing with alcohol. If people are giving you a lot of grief and making you feel weird or bad about it, or like you're the problem at the table, then maybe not the best friends that you want to keep around in during this life change. Yeah, exactly. And in my experience, I will say again that the overwhelming majority of people are just not going to care. They're just going to mm -hmm. be like, okay, and move on. Let me talk about me because <laughs> that's what yeah. everybody's really thinking about. Um, and then there'll be people that are supportive and positive and great. You don't have to do anything different. Right. I think I talk to clients sometimes about that same idea that people care so much more about themselves than they do about you. Mm -hmm. But our perception is that people care so much about what we're doing and that we think they're noticing every single thing we're putting on our plate or every single drink we're having and counting along with us. And the majority of people really don't care. And that was one of the things that was most freeing for me to learn in life is just do you because nobody cares as much about me as they do about themselves. Yeah. And I will also offer that our brains get really stinky um, about not wanting us to make changes, right? So I think it would probably be the same with making food changes that your brain is going to offer you every reason in the book to keep things the same as they were. Your brain likes 
predictability. Your brain likes reliability. Your brain likes a plan. Your brain likes to know exactly what's going on. And this comes from this deep instinctual part of yourself that, you know, back when we were a nomadic society, we kind of needed to know where the food was and we kind of needed to know what was going to eat us and we kind of needed to know where the water source was. So staying the same was actually biologically advantageous because it would keep us you know from dying it would keep it was part of our survival mechanism and that just really hasn't caught up with our modern context where it's like well yeah if I if I stop drinking then I'm not actually going to get kicked out of the tribe but I'm going to be okay I'm not going to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger but our brain offers us these messages because brains don't like to be to experience change. And it's a big mm-hmm. change to change the way you eat or to change the way you're consuming alcohol. It, it can really make your brain panic a little bit. So it makes sense that it would offer you every reason to not make the change. And possibly you're not kicked out of the tribe. But if you are kicked out of the tribe, then it's probably not a tribe that was worth being a part of in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be totally okay. Yeah, it's where you're probably going to be better off without that tribe. (laughs) Are there certain, I think that could be one of them, but are there other mindset shifts that are necessary for most or all of your clients to overcome when they're on a journey to drink less? Yeah, I think so. Um, Almost certainly. When a person has a problematic relationship with alcohol, And again, I would say this goes for any of the things that we develop addictive patterns with. So your drug of choice could be wine, or it could be cupcakes, or it could be online shopping or social media. It could even be, quote, healthy practices like over-exercising or overworking. And when you develop a relationship with something like this, it's in your brain all of the time, and it takes up a lot of space. You're kind of thinking about it constantly. And whether you know it or not, it becomes a part of who you are. And that's the theme that's evident in mommy wine culture, for example. So if you're a wine mom, you're almost taking on this identity in and of itself. And our thoughts and our beliefs and our behaviors just surround this identity. So things like I can't parent without my 5 p.m. glass of mommy juice and alcohol makes parenting tolerable. And it's that meme uh, that I mentioned earlier of a tired mom with a cup of coffee in one hand and a glass of wine in the other. And it's well-worn and well-practiced in your belief that you need something outside of yourself like food or wine or purchases on Amazon to be able to tolerate your life. So when you decide that you want to have a different relationship with this thing that's become such a big part of who you are, your relationship with yourself needs to change as well. So the people who have long-term success with making changes like this are people who endeavor to become a different person. And that isn't easy, but it's essentially what's required in order to make long-term sustainable changes. Um, it's why simply doing a detox or a cleanse, which is something I used to do all the time, I was like, I'm just going to do a whole 30 and then I'll just mm-hmm. you know, cleanse myself out of my drinking problem. But the, the problem was that I didn't change my mindset or how I was thinking about it. It was about just say no, just say no, just say no. And then, you know, the cleanse would end and I would go right back to what I was doing because I hadn't changed my relationship with myself. So it has to be more than that. Um, It has to be more than just saying no. It has to be more than not putting alcohol into a glass and ingesting it. It means you need to become a different person. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I mean, it's just funny, not funny, but crazy how... (laughs) It's everything you're saying is so, so, so parallel to a relationship with food. And it obviously makes sense because they're both things that you're consuming on a regular basis, maybe food more so than alcohol, but still possibly on a daily basis. And it does require 
all of these paradigm shifts and new relationship with yourself. And um, I'm glad you brought up the idea of the detoxes because I was curious about that. I know a lot of people do dry January and tout about, you know, not going to have a sip of alcohol for a month. And I've done some reading on it and some people will say, you know, that's better than nothing. And maybe some people leave that realizing how much they were drinking and it could be helpful for a little while even, but at the same time, it ends at a certain point and you haven't done the deeper work to probably stay consistent with uh, even just cutting back long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's something that I learned firsthand is that I couldn't, you know, just say no for 30 days and then expect it to be different magically at the end without actually doing any of the work. So that was a huge part yeah. of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And same for like a whole 30 or a 21 day sugar detox. I mean, I hear about these all the time. So mm-hmm. I actually yeah. hear about a new one, a new one a week, I would say of a new detox out there. I didn't know existed. So always yeah. learning these crazy marketing ploys that you've mentioned. They're, they're never going to go away. I don't think so. We've got to learn how to live in spite of them. Um, One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I would say that making a health investment, and, and I would almost frame it as how to, like not necessarily define a health investment, but maybe how to approach making a health investment. So I think something that we commonly, it's kind of this common theme in our culture is that if something in life feels bad, then it means that we're doing it wrong, or it means it's not the right thing. We've kind of become conditioned to think that if we're having any negative emotion, that it means that something is going wrong. But I would say truly investing in making a change for your health is often really uncomfortable And so if we're willing to experience that discomfort in the short term, then what we get long term is going to be a million times worth it. And so I would say that making a health investment to me is just being willing to experience that discomfort for the long term gain. Mm, Love that. Love that approach to it. And it's always fun for me to hear different guests and their different takes on it. Um, Usually people phrase it better than I would myself. So I've gotten a lot of ideas for my website from I love that. <laughs> all of you guests. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned already, I will link to the episode, if you'll send it to me, that you did on navigating social, social situations with friends without alcohol. Uh, and then people can find your podcast. So that would be great. But where else can listeners follow and find you? Yeah, of course. So my podcast, just everybody knows, is called the Alcohol Freedom Podcast. And you can search for that on any of the major players. You're also welcome to head to my website and listen to it directly. It's michellecapler.com. And on there, you can learn more about how to work with me. I work with clients one-on-one. And uh, I also have a little freebie if you want to get started. It's called the Seven Day Alcohol Freedom Experiment, where I take you through learning some of these tools that I use with my clients to help them make permanent changes to the way they're relating to their drinking. And then um, also, I'm on Instagram, and you can find me there at Michelle Kepler. Awesome. Well, I will link all of those things in the show notes. Is the freebie on your website? You can just find that easily there. 
So if they want to try the seven-day alcohol freedom experiment that's on there, you're just going to scroll all the way to the bottom of the homepage and it says get started for free right now. And then I also have another free course that I did recently and it's a course called how to relax without your nightly glass of wine. And I'm happy to send you the link for that as well if anybody wants to grab that for free. Awesome. Well, I am so grateful. I love this conversation so much. And I am just so grateful that you were here with me today and that you gave us your time. And I look forward to staying connected with you off air. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.